This morning we come to the conclusion of a season that began with radio stations devoting nearly two months to Christmas songs. Those songs sung by great theologians like Gene Autry and Karen Carpenter and the Eagles and Burl Ives and Madonna and Seeger and Springsteen and Vanessa Williams and everybody in between. For about the last month, you couldn't go into a store or an office without hearing Christmas carols. And today we have sung, we're going to end our service today with yet another Christmas carol. Carols celebrating the birth of Christ have been written for centuries. In our own day, uh, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend have written the song that we sang first today. Son of Adam, Son of Heaven, given as a ransom, reconciling God and man, Christ our mighty champion. What a Savior, what a friend, what a glorious mystery. Once a babe in Bethlehem, now the Lord of history. And in the 19th century, James Montgomery wrote, Come and worship, come and worship, come and worship Christ, the newborn King. Charles Wesley in the 18th century wrote, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set your people free, from our sins and fears release us, Christ in whom our rest shall be. And Charles Wesley, once again, in the carol that we're going to sing at the end of our service today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He said, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He said he's born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Adam's likeness now effaced. Stamp thy image in its place. Isaac Watts, who wrote the famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he also wrote, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. And going all the way back to the fourth century, an early hymn said, Praise Him, all you hosts of heaven. Praise Him, angels in the height. Powers, dominions bow before Him and extol His glorious might. But hymns and carols to Christ go back even further than that. Did you know that there are a number of them in your New Testament? The books of Romans, Philippians, Colossians, Titus, 2 Timothy, and as we're going to see today, 1 Timothy, they all contain lines from songs that the first century church would sing together regarding truth about Jesus Christ. Our passage today is one of those carols. Take a look at verse 16 of 1 Timothy 3. And I want you to notice, if you have an, an NIV and, and most translations set apart the final six lines in that verse. They set those lines apart from the couple of lines that precede in order to show that it's poetry, that it's a song, it's a hymn, it's a carol about Christ. And it says there, He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. We're going to look at this very early hymn about Jesus Christ. Let's ask God to help us as we do. 
Our Father, once again, we thank you for this very blessed, special day. As we celebrate the sending of your Son to earth to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, grant us now quietness of spirit with all that has gone on in the weeks leading up to this day. Help us to settle our minds and concentrate on the very important and blessed work of learning anew of Jesus Christ and his person and work on our behalf. We ask this in his name. Amen. Now you'll notice at the top of the outline that is in your program, and I encourage you to take a look at that, that the title of our message today is, Is God on a Mission? But notice it says actually more than that. It says, God on a Mission from God. Now why is it that I, that I say it that way? It's because the one whose coming we celebrate at Christmas is none other than God himself. He is God the Son, who willfully and voluntarily came to earth, having been sent by God the Father. And that's why the Bible says, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman. It is why when Jesus came to the end of his ministry on earth, the night before he died, he prayed a long prayer in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is really the Lord's prayer. Because it is a prayer that the Lord prayed the night before he died. And in that prayer, he says this. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So when God the Son came to earth 2,000 years ago, it was not the beginning of his existence. It was the beginning of his mission on earth. And that's why I say in your outline that the mission of God the Son includes, first of all, coming to earth by extraordinary means. Our passage in 1 Timothy 3.16 says, first of all, he appeared in a body. He appeared in a body. Now, when a baby is born today, and we are happily sending out announcements regularly about babies born into our congregation, thank God, and I have occasion to send those notes to our church congregation, and we'll say so-and-so was born and weighed so much and was so long and everybody's doing fine and, and so on. And we thank God for that, but we never say that so-and-so appeared. It's kind of an interesting way to say he who was born appeared in a body. But the reason it's written that way is to signify the fact that it's his revelation, it's his making himself known, it's his manifesting himself, the one who has already existed from all eternity past. We see that very clearly in other passages in Scripture. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Now notice this next phrase, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And who is this word? It goes on to tell us. The word is the one who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus Christ did not originate here. He came here. 
And when we celebrate Christmas, it's not enough, really, friends, to say that we celebrate Christ's birth. We really celebrate His coming. Because that emphasizes His pre-existence, that He has existed from all eternity past as God the Son. That's why Jesus would often say, if you read the first four books of your New Testament, the Gospels, that center on Jesus' life on earth, he would often say of himself, I came into the world. For this purpose, I came. 2,000 years ago, it was the coming of God the Son to earth. And so important is this truth regarding who Christ is, that it served as a primary test for orthodoxy, for whether or not one was truly a Christian in the first century church. The question was, do you believe that Christ has come in the flesh? And so the Bible says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And the Bible says very directly that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity, that is, of God, lives in bodily form. And so in your NIV, in verse 16, when it says, he appeared in a body. Other translations say he was revealed in the flesh. That is, he was made known. He made his appearance, the one who already was and always has been. He made his appearance. He made himself known by coming in flesh as a human being. We sing at Christmas time, oh, little town of Bethlehem. But here's why. Hundreds of years before he was actually, he actually came to earth in Bethlehem. It was predicted, it was prophesied that that would be the place where God would send his son. And so in the first part of your Bible, the book of Micah, it says, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Now notice this, his origins are from of old, from ancient times. God became man 2,000 years ago. And in order for that to occur, there had to be an extraordinary birth. Extraordinary, out of the ordinary birth. And that's why we sing and celebrate of the virgin conception and birth. The Bible had predicted hundreds of years before the conception and birth that it would be that way. And then that's repeated in your New Testament, the very first chapter of your New Testament. You see, it's a quotation from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God is with us. Now, why the means of a virgin conception and birth? Well, it was necessary for it to happen that way in order to secure Christ's personhood and his sinlessness. Dr. Snowberger from the seminary. Some of you have been treated to his teaching on Wednesday nights. You will be again uh, beginning mid-January, January 18th. He's written recently about this, and here's what he said. Had Mary and Joseph come together to produce a new child, that new zygote, that's Snowberger talk, <laughs> that new zygote would have been by natural procreation a new person. And were this the case, then the pre-existent person of Christ would have been imposed upon and forced to coexist with this new human personality as some sort of schizophrenic monstrosity. Worse yet, any person that Mary and Joseph could have produced 
and we know that later they did produce other children, would have naturally been sinful. It's a hereditary trait predicated of all persons. And it would have been not only a schizophrenic monstrosity, but also an evil schizophrenic monstrosity. And so as we celebrate Christmas, he appeared in a body. He came by extraordinary means, coming to earth by these extraordinary means. As we look at the rest of these five descriptions of the person and work of Jesus Christ, I want you to do something. As we look at each of them, ask yourself this, who is Jesus then? Given what these six things say about him, who is Jesus? And in this first line, he appeared in a body. And you ask the question, who is Jesus? The answer is he's no ordinary man. He is the God-man. And the mission of God, the Son, includes coming to earth by these extraordinary means. But it also, and I have secondly in your outline, it also includes living on earth with miraculous deeds. Living on earth with miraculous deeds. Now why these miraculous deeds that Jesus did while he was on earth? Here's why. The first part of your Bible predicts that there will be one who will come called the Messiah, the Anointed One. The Hebrew word is the Mashiach. And then in Greek, which your New Testament is written in, his title, the equivalent title is Christos, Christ, the Anointed One. And so when we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title. Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, predicted in the first part of your Bible. And so you have these predictions, like in Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's going to come one in the future on whom the Lord is going to lay the sin of all mankind. But how do we know who that one is when he comes? And to show that he was the anointed that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ. Jesus did these mighty works by the power of the Spirit while he was on earth to show that indeed he was the chosen anointed one. And so Jesus would say to his detractors, believe me on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Those miracles were done by the power of God the Spirit as he walked the earth. And the most marvelous of all of those miracles that God the Spirit did through God the Son was when he raised him from the dead. The Bible says very directly, the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And that is why in our passage, 1 Timothy 3.16, it's not just that he appeared in a body, but that second line is then he was vindicated by the Spirit. The claims that he made to being the anointed one, to being the chosen one, were justified, they were proven, they were vindicated by virtue of the signs that he gave through the power of the Holy Spirit. Chief among them, the Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. In fact, another passage in your Bible says directly that very thing. Through the Spirit, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And so one commentator has said, 
This declaration in Romans 1.4 is an important declaration because you remember that when Jesus died, he died under a sentence of condemnation. He died under the sentence of sin. He died as a criminal. The verdict on Jesus by the religious leaders and acquiescence by the Romans was that he was worthy of death and he should be put to death. From the religious leaders' viewpoint, he was a heretic who threatened the kingdom of God. And from the Romans' viewpoint, he was a would-be king who threatened the power of Rome. And in either case, he died under a cloud of guilt. The resurrection was God's vindication that both the religious leaders and the political power were equally wrong. And so the great vindication of Christ comes in the resurrection. In Romans 1.4 that I have on the screen, it uses the word declared. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That word declared is a Greek word, horizo. We get our word horizon from it. And it's an interesting word because it vividly illustrates what it, what it means. A horizon is the clear boundary between earth and sky. When you look out, say, over the ocean, and you see where the water ends and the sky begins, that's the horizon. And the horizon then is a clear boundary. It's a line of demarcation between one thing and another. Now hear this. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead to declare that he was completely different from anyone else who ever lived in this world or who will ever live in this world as a human being. A boundary is set clearly between Christ and all other beings. The Spirit's raising Jesus from the dead gives irrefutable evidence to clearly mark out and distinguish the human life of Christ as, in fact, God, who was hidden, now made visible. So who is Jesus? Some might say, well, he's just a spirit. There are lots of spirit beings. He's a spirit. He took on a body for a temporary period of time. But no, he was God having come, we've seen. And who is Jesus? He's not just a spirit. He's not even the Holy Spirit. He's the one who was empowered by the Spirit to vindicate, to prove the claims that he made to being the chosen one. The mission of God the Son includes coming to earth by extraordinary means. It also means living on earth with miraculous deeds. Notice thirdly, watching on earth by heavenly beings. Our passage says that he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, and then was seen by angels. This resurrection that proved that he, Jesus, was God's anointed one was witnessed by angels, the Bible tells us. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone. And prior to the resurrection, angels, the Bible tells us, witnessed creation. Job 38 and verse 7 in your Bible says, The morning stars sang together at creation. They witnessed creation. They witnessed the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. They announced, as we've all seen in this Christmas season, the birth of Jesus Christ. And they witnessed the Lord's suffering in the garden the night before he died. You remember when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, 
but your will be done. And the Bible tells us that in that agony, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Now why? Why are angels given a front row seat, as it were, to all the activities related to Jesus, especially his death and resurrection? It's because one of their chief functions is to worship God. And they saw his suffering and his resurrection and his ascension. And at the end of history, here's what we find the angels doing in the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. John MacArthur says, The angels watched the death and the resurrection of Christ so that it, might be for, that it might forever inform their worship. Who is Jesus? He is God, vindicated by the power of the Spirit. Not just a man, not just any spirit. And who is Jesus? He's not an angel. But rather, he was observed and watched and is worshipped by angels. The mission of God, the Son, includes coming to earth by extraordinary means and living on earth with miraculous deeds and watching on earth by heavenly angels. Fourthly, it includes spreading on earth His incredible news. Jesus completes His work. He completes His mission. He ascends back to the Father. He leaves final instructions for his first followers that we know as the Great Commission. He says, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples now. You're going to spread this throughout the earth. And that's why our passage says, he was seen by angels and fourthly, was preached among the nations. The word that's translated nations is the word from which we get ethnicity or ethnic. It's saying, Jesus is saying, my message is going to be preached to every tongue and tribe and nation. Not just one nation, not just Israel, not just one race, not just the Jews. It is going to go to the Gentiles. It's going to go to, to all people now. And so his mission on earth includes now spreading on earth his incredible news and he sends his emissaries now out to do that. And by extension, sends us out to do that. He sends back to the Father. And this is what the Bible says about his instructions to those first followers. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote a second book in your New Testament called the Book of Acts. And Luke starts out the Book of Acts this way. In my former book, that is the Book of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus, notice this word, began to do and to teach. You see what's implied there? That the work of Jesus has just begun at the end of his earthly ministry, and now his work is going to continue throughout his world as his good news is spread to every tribe and tongue and nation through his first followers. And what's the content of that preaching, that spreading of his incredible news going to be. It's going to be now. 
that repentance, he says, and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. And it's actually good news. It's actually great news for all people now that they can be reconciled to God, that we can have peace with God, that the announcement of the first angels on that first Christmas, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, can now be accomplished because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And the good news, the great news, the gospel, that's literally what it means, good news, great news, is this, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so on this Christmas day, I ask you, who is Jesus? What do you believe about who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? He's the Savior of the world. He's the one alone through whom we can have a relationship with God. But the good news is anyone can have that relationship through Him. The mission of God the Son means coming to earth, living on earth with miraculous deeds, watching on earth by heavenly beings, spreading on earth His incredible news. Fifthly, it means creating on earth His unique people. Creating on earth His unique people. The fifth line in 1 Timothy 3.16 says... He was believed on in the world. And how was he believed on? How was he then? And how is he now believed on in the world? Here's how. Because those emissaries now for 2,000 years have been going about throughout his world preaching, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations and inviting people to believe who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And thanks be to God, he has a people that he is calling out of the world unto himself. And when that message goes forward, there are always some who believe. Are you among them? Do you believe the message of who Jesus is, God the Son, having come to reconcile us to the God who made us and from whom we are estranged because of our sin, every one of us. He came on a mission to die. He died on the cross according to the scriptures, but death could not hold him, and so he was raised by the power of the Spirit on the third day. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, you acknowledge that to him by bowing your heart and your head before Him, acknowledging that you are apart from God, separated from God because of your sin. Every one of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And all therefore need the same solution, to believe on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that faith, and that word faith in your New Testament is the same word for belief, faith or believing, comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. And when one believes, yes, Lord, I believe what you say about who I am and who Jesus is and what He has done for me, and I ask you to apply His death on the cross to me. Forgive me of my sins. Take my life. I want to follow you. When that happens, the Bible says this. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Who is Jesus? He's your Savior. He's the one who saves us and gives us peace with our God. The mission of God the Son includes coming to earth by these extraordinary means and living on earth with these miraculous deeds, being watched on earth by angels, spreading on earth His incredible news, creating on earth His unique people, and notice lastly, returning to earth in His new kingdom. Our passage says He was taken up in glory. And when that happened, the Bible records for us precisely when that happened, when he was taken up in glory. And here's what the dense apostles are saying to him. After he's died on the cross, after he's raised from the dead, after he has walked among them for 40 days, showing that he's alive, after he has taught them for three and a half years, this is what they say. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus, patient as always, said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. You see, that kingdom now still awaits his return. And in that passage, as Jesus ascended back to the Father, having completed his work on earth, it says, after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And it says they're standing there, and they're looking up as Jesus goes, and then they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white, two angels show up, and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. He will return as the God-man. And he will ascend his throne. And he will rule his world. And all will be justice. And all will be peace. And he will rule as the king who is still a man. Did you know that? But the God-man. Even after all of this, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his ascension, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Just as you saw him go, he will return as the God-man and he will be the king of kings and lord of lords in his world. The end of human history, the Bible says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with him, with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, friends, that's what Christmas is about. And that is a serious Christmas carol. I'm going to end with just a few words, and then we're going to have a song for our ensemble, and we'll be dismissed with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But every year since 1992, National Public Radio has played an excerpt from something called the Santa Land Diaries. And it's alternately funny, and some parts aren't so funny, but most of it's really funny. But at the end of this excerpt, David Sedaris makes a very profound point. Let me read it for you. The Santa Land Diaries are about a time that he spent working at Macy's in New York as a Christmas elf in Santa Land. And here's what he says in his diary. I've spent the last several days sitting in a crowded, windowless Macy's classroom undergoing the first phase of elf training. You can be an entrance elf, a water cooler elf, a bridge elf, a train elf, a maze elf, an island elf, a magic window elf, usher elf, cash register elf, or exit elf. Today the store is jammed with people. There was a line for Santa and a line for the women's bathroom. And one woman, after asking me a thousand questions already, asked, which is the line for the women's bathroom? And I shouted that I thought it was the line with all the women in it. And she said, I'm going to have you fired. And he says, I had two people tell me that today. I'm going to have you fired. And his response is, go ahead, be my guest. I'm wearing a green velvet costume. It can't get any worse than this. This evening, I was sent to be a photo elf. Once a child starts crying, it's all over. The parents had planned to send these pictures as cards. And tonight, I saw a woman get angry at her crying daughter. And she yelled, Rachel, get on that man's lap and smile, or I'll give you something to cry about. Then she sat Rachel on Santa's lap. I took the picture, now hear this, which supposedly means on paper, everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be that everything is snowy and wonderful. And he says, it's not about the child, or Santa, or Christmas, or anything, but the parents' idea of a world they cannot make work for them. David Sedaris said, parents try to make it the way they want it to be, but they can't. Jesus can make it the way he wants it to be. And he is, and he will. And who is Jesus? He's the coming king. And at the bottom of your outline, I say, Christians celebrate that there is no one and no thing in the universe that's greater than Jesus. Now, if you will give me just two more minutes, I'm really done. We looked at those six things in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 16. But just before those six things, it has a couple of lines. Will you take a look at those? Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then it says he appeared in a body and was vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels and preached among the nations and believed on in the world and taken up into glory. But beyond all question, and when it says that, it's the word from which we get our word confession. It's saying that there's no controversy. There's no question about this. We all believe this. We all confess this. 
We all confess, if we are Christians, these six things about Jesus. This is our confession. This is what we all believe. And the mystery, and that word mystery simply means the making known. That God has made known how it is that someone becomes godly before him. And how does that happen? These six things that are this first early Christmas carol. In chapter 1 and verse 6 of 1 Timothy, it tells us that Timothy, to whom this letter was written, was in a place called Ephesus. And some of you know that in Ephesus they had a temple to Diana. And that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And in Acts chapter 19 in your Bible, there was a riot because so many people were coming to Christ, they were no longer buying the stuff that the silversmiths made to worship Diana. And they pour into the streets. Acts 19 says and says, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul, who wrote this to Timothy at Ephesus, is saying, Great is Jesus. Great, not Diana, great is Jesus. Great is Jesus who appeared in a body and was vindicated by the Spirit and seen by angels and preached among the nations and believed on in the world and taken up into glory. We're going to bow and pray. I ask you, on this Christmas, what do you believe about Jesus? No one or no thing greater than Jesus. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. And he's your coming king. When we bow, I ask you to do this. From your heart to God, if you've never come to God through Jesus Christ, in your own words, acknowledge who you are as a sinner. Signify, say to God, I believe that Jesus, God, has come to die for my sins. And he's my Lord, and I want to follow him with my life. He will rescue you and reconcile you to himself. Let's bow together.